Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 3rd, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be talking about Vince McMahon biopic casting rumors, Tandy Newton's Han Solo character possibly revealed, how Shaft may be tur- the turning point for Netflix distribution models, the longevity of Stranger Things and Luke Besson's Lucy 2, and in the water cooler, we'll be talking about a variety of movies, The Magic Castle, and Moving. Joining me on today's podcast, Slash Home Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. So guys, uh, it is Monday. We had a weekend. Um, <laughs> it Some was, of you did. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were you up to? You've been moving, right? Oh, I've been moving. If you follow me on Twitter, you've, you've heard me complain about this a lot. But the short version is that my... The closing date from a new house got pushed till mid-October, but I had to be out of my apartment at the end of September. So everything I own is currently in storage while I crash in my mom's house with my wife. So it's 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 a thing. Like I, I I'm not homeless. I'm not in trouble. I, this is not. This is such a first-world problem to be having. Like I'm, you know, still, I'm still getting a house in a few weeks. But it's been a very frustrating couple of days as I realize I'm, I'm in limbo between homes, which means that I'm, I'm essentially living a bit of a skeleton life when it comes to entertainment and all the things I usually write and have fun doing is like, you know, I'm in a weird position, you know, like every, like just today, my wife and I were like, let's rewatch Blade Runner with Blade Runner 2049 coming out. Our Blade Runner Blu-ray is in a storage unit in Austin, Texas. So we said, let's go rent Blade Runner. It's $15 on iTunes and I couldn't find it anywhere else. And it's just, man, I start realizing, oh, Life is weird when I don't have access to all the things I bought to, to reinforce my bad habits and hobbies. <laughs> so what are you doing? Do do they have do they have cable? Is there anything for you to do? Well, I brought my Nintendo Switch. Um, so I've been playing uh, Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle, which is one hell of a thing. <laughs> I'm enjoying that. Uh, I brought a handful of books. Actually, ran, I ran to a used bookstore. I just read... Um, Neil Gabler's Walt Disney biography. I'm almost done with uh, The Disaster Artist, the book about the making of the room. And I have um, Sleeping Beauty, Stephen King and Owen King's new novel, as well as a book about the Attica prison uprising. So I have, I have my, my books lined up for a few weeks. 
but, but you, you start to realize that it's really hard to go watch Blade Runner in the week before <laughs> 2049 comes out because I don't want to spend 15 bucks on a Blu-ray on a digital version of a movie I already own. So right now I'm kicking myself about what do I do to rewatch Blade Runner before Friday? There, there's um, no maybe, way you nowhere you can rent that for less. That's what I'm trying to figure out because oh, you guys want to get into my new show, my incredibly boring life right now. We brought our <laughs> Apple TV, so we so maybe it's available on Amazon to stream or to rent or to rent. But our Apple TV um, doesn't give us access to Amazon right now because you know Apple and Amazon aren't friends. So it's just a case where either we watch it on my computer, which is not the way to watch Blade Runner. Or we pay fifteen bucks in, in, in iTunes. He, he, here's a tip, Jacob. Uh, while Amazon and Apple are not friends, you can download the Amazon Video app for your phone, and you can actually airstream it to your Apple TV. This so is you, actually a very good idea. Yes, I've done this many times. It's not uh, the best because you, I think you got to leave your phone like on, and like you know that means that you can't like go away from that screen to like look stuff up or answer a text message while the movie is playing. Um, so basically what I'm saying is you, you're back into like the 1970s and eighties of watching movies because <laughs> you, you got to actually pay attention to it. But uh, yeah, it, it's possible and it looks good. It doesn't look bad. Cool. I'll, I'll look into that. It's, I, I know it's just such a weird thing to complain about. Like if like, I'm trying to like, I realize it's being really whiny on Twitter like I'm having such a series of first world problems right now. I'm like, I have family who loves me enough to put me up. I have a house. I have, you know, I have a Apple TV that still has access to many, many movies that I should want to watch. You just got I'm to still feel like, yeah, you, you just got to go to a film festival and see many movies that people aren't going to see for months, if not a year. A little blessed life, Peter Shredder. Things are good, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'll talk about what I've been doing because. Um, when I recorded the podcast with you, Jacob, last week, we came across or we, we mentioned the movie The American Scream by uh, Michael Paul Stevenson because you were mentioning another movie on uh, these horror mazes and, and events. What, what was that movie? Uh, Hunters, The Art of the Scare. Yes. Uh, and that made me want to rewatch that because uh, my girlfriend country had never seen it. So I showed her that. She loved it. This movie... For anybody who hasn't watched it, and I think it's available on iTunes to rent for very cheap, um, is about a bunch of uh, – it's about in this town in Massachusetts, there's a bunch of people that basically for Halloween create their own like haunted uh, houses in their backyards. And there's these elaborate – you know, they spend all year like building these haunted houses just for one night. For, you know, the neighborhood to experience. And, uh, you know, some of them are a lot more elaborate than others. It's one of those documentaries, kind of like um, Trekkies, where the, the characters are what's more interesting about it than maybe the story. Uh, it's very quirky characters. It's very enjoyable. And after I showed her that, she had admitted that she had never seen Best Worst Movie, which is Michael Paul Stevenson's other documentary. And if you don't know, Michael Paul Stevenson, uh, was a child actor. He starred in the movie Troll 2, which had been notoriously the worst movie of all time. Um, I think probably The Room has maybe unseated that lately. I don't know. Um, but it, it's a movie called Troll 2 that actually isn't a sequel to Troll 1, um, but, you know, was written as a... It, it, it's a crazy story of how that movie got made. The documentary kind of follows the 
uh, resurgence of that movie, it kind of become a cult hit. Uh, people would watch it for fun, and uh, at the at the center of this is this dentist who lives in the small town that starred in this movie and you know wanted to be an actor but became a dentist instead and all these years later is you know kind of uh feeling a bit of 15 minutes of fame and going on these tours and it's kind of the ups and downs of 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 that and it's uh, a very good arc that uh couldn't have been written better if it was a, if it was a uh fictional narrative film and if you have not seen that and you love movies and if those things i mean if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen that you know watch best worst movie um and if you haven't seen uh the american scream i highly recommend it the other movie i want to talk about jacob has already talked about uh that is gerald's game which is now on uh netflix it is an adaptation of the stephen king novel which i had never read didn't know anything about um it's kind of a movie that takes place mostly in one location with, I want to say, like two people, two or three people, something like that. Um, Given the exact number, will be a spoiler, so let's, let's okay. leave it there. Yeah, yeah, two or three people, <laughs> a handful of people. Uh, it's yeah. very enjoyable. I, I just don't want to like people to go into this thinking it's going to be kind of a sprawling movie. You know, this is a movie that takes place yeah. in one location, and it's kind of like one of those very contained, you know, almost like misery, I guess. Um, very enjoyable. I loved it. Uh, the, yeah, I can't say more about it without ruining anything. So, <laughs> so I, I do appreciate want... As somebody who hasn't seen it yet and is looking forward to it, I appreciate the uh, the hesitance to uh, <laughs> to ruin anything. Yes. I do want to say, well, I do want to add one thing. Oh, oh also... Do not watch when you go on Netflix and you highlight the movies. It, you, it starts playing like this trailer for the movies. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you highlight this in the first, like I want to say, 15 seconds of that trailer, it gives away kind of like the hook of the movie, which I would say, you know, so highlight it and click it right away before you know Netflix ruins it for you. <laughs> I do, do want to add one thing about this since I've watched it again since we talked about it uh, after Fantastic Fest, Peter, which is I showed it to my wife, and there's a scene that she screamed during it and kept on screaming and kept on screaming and screamed for about two <laughs> minutes straight. So we had to pause it. Then if you read our interview with Mike Flanagan, the director that went on slash film today uh, from Fred Topol, our TV writer who often does film review uh, interviews with us as well. Um, he said that there was somebody who actually fainted at the film's premiere at Fantastic Fest and they had to call an ambulance. So this is a scene people are going to be talking about. So don't let it, don't let it be spoiled for you. Go, yeah. go see this movie or go watch, go stream this movie before you hear what it's about. Yeah. My girlfriend wow. was so freaked out. Uh, it, it's very enjoyable. Watch it with your uh, significant other and, uh, you know, with the lights out, at, you know, in the dark. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fun movie. Ben, what have you been up to? It was your birthday weekend. Yes, yes. Uh, Friday was my birthday and I actually got to hang out with you, Peter. Um my wife and my friend Patrick met you and Kitra at the Magic Castle. So that was a cool thing. It's, you know, hearing you talk about the Magic Castle has made me want to go. For anybody who doesn't really know what that is, uh, you clearly haven't been listening to this podcast because Peter's <laughs> talked about it a lot uh, since becoming a member, but it's basically a, a private club uh, for magicians. And we saw all sorts of performances, you know, ranging from like 
close-up card magic to you know cups and balls and stuff and then there were big stage shows there was a juggler who was on like a i don't know like a five and a half foot unicycle juggling loaves of bread under his own legs while riding this thing it was insane so um you know they did the standard uh girl gets cut in half kind of trick um but yeah i think the close-up stuff was the the things that um peter and i both sort of appreciated a little bit more than the the large scale stage uh, performance aspect. Um, but it was a ton of fun. And actually, Peter himself performed a little bit for us uh, off in the, a little corner. So that was really cool. So uh, thanks again for, for taking us, Peter. It was great. I was very jealous of that, by the way, watching you guys hanging out at the Magic Castle on Twitter. I was like, I want to go. <laughs> Jacob, come to California. We will go to the Magic Castle. We'll go to Disneyland. We'll go. Yes. We'll, we'll go to Disney California Adventure. We'll go to Universal. Oh, we'll, we'll make a week. You guys, yeah, you guys would have a blast. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Ben, thanks for coming with me. And uh, anytime you want to go back, let me know. We don't have to go awesome. for dinner. It doesn't have to be that expensive. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it is a fun time. And uh, and thanks for watching some of my magic. Uh, it's, it's a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, let's go on to the news. Uh, first in the news, there is a feature film being developed based on WWE chairman Vince McMahon's life. And rumor has it that Bradley Cooper has been offered the role of Vince McMahon. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yes, Crazy Stupid Love and Focus directors Glenn Ficarra and John Riqua are currently developing a movie called Pandemonium, which is a biopic of Vince McMahon. If you know anything about wrestling, it's probably because of him. He is almost single-handedly the guy who basically turned wrestling from uh, a sort of a very small-scale regional sport into a united massive entertainment behemoth that it is today uh you would not really know who hulk hogan is if it wasn't for vince mcmahon he's one of the the sort of uh he's like the stan lee of wrestling maybe that's kind of the closest analogy i can think of um so yeah a, a movie uh about vince mcmahon is being made and bradley cooper apparently according to a professional wrestling website uh received an offer to play McMahon. And I think we were talking a little bit about this in our, our slash film Slack channel. I think Bradley Cooper is actually a sort of inspired casting for this. He has the sort of slick hair and the sort of uh, almost skeezy personality that McMahon um, puts on as his public persona. Um, so that would be kind of a cool thing. It's not, you know, this is a rumor at this stage. We got to take it with the requisite grains of salt. We're not sure what the whole thing, you know, how exactly it's going to play out. But I like the idea. And um, McMahon, if you don't know, I mean, there's this guy is like a brash sort of larger than life uh, personality who often gets in the ring and wrestles himself. I mean, he's he's like a a uh, as much of a public figure in the WWE as any of the actual wrestlers that um, the league is built around. So, uh, Peter, as somebody who you know used to be a big wrestling fan, what do you think about this? Um, I think Vince McMahon's life is very fascinating. It, it, it's almost a, it, one of those things that if you see a, a narrative film based on it, it might almost seem uh, almost like narcos like too large for life it seems like almost ridiculous some of the things that that happen in that story uh, my worry is uh, that you know this being produced with WWE that it will kind of be 
glossy and kind of, uh, you know, not tell the full truth on some things. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm interested in seeing it. I, I, I honestly would love to see a documentary by like someone like Ken Burns that would if if WWE would give him the full access to the you know the wrestling archive of the WWE network uh I would love to see some, him put something together you know like a large scale mini series kind of on the the whole rise of of, of wrestling but um I'm there not... is something it's uh the ESPN 30 for 30 films they actually produced a documentary fairly recently called this is or this was the XFL and Vince McMahon while he's best known for wrestling also tried to kickstart a short-lived football league called the XFL I think that was in the early 2000s or late 90s and um that documentary is really good. It sort of touches a little bit on McMahon's history, but it does give you a great uh, insight into what sort of personality he is and the the kind of uh, media savvy guy that he is. So if you're interested in him and you haven't seen this was the XFL, uh, check that out on ESPN. Yeah, I, I, I actually saw that and that is very good. Um, I'm not sure if that's available online, but if you can seek that out, definitely watch that. Uh, also in the news. Ron Howard tweeted a photo from the set of Han Solo, and that might have given us some clues about Handy Newton's character in the upcoming Star Wars standalone story. Jacob, you're at the, you wrote up this article that's turned into kind of a mini feature on SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Well, what we know, the bare bones fact, is that Ron Howard likes sharing photos from the set of Han Solo. He does it often. You usually have fun captions. You usually have like cheeky descriptions of Star Wars references, a lot of stuff that managed to be fun without revealing a lot. He's very like James Gunn. I feel like Ron Howard is very good at using Twitter to get people excited uh, without saying much. But he took a photo with uh, Tandy Newton, who, if you're listening, uh, she's the English actress, uh, recently an Emmy nominee for her work in Westworld, where she played Maeve. And we knew she was cast in Han Solo. We didn't know who she was. And she's recently returned to the set for reshoots. And Ron Howard posed with her in this very sweet photo. They look like having a great time. It's a nice picture. But you look at Ron Howard's right hand, and he's covering up her shoulder. And over the edge of his hand is a familiar black and white patch, which is the symbol for the Galactic Empire. It looks, for those of you who don't know what I'm saying, it kind of looks like a black and white cog, almost. You, if, you're, if you've seen Star Wars, you, you will recognize it when you see it. And you look at, she's wearing this imperial patch on her shoulder in sort of a baggy black um, suit or, or um, outfit of some kind. So as I dug into this little photo and tried to extrapolate as much as I could, first I tried to figure out, okay, either she's, this character she's playing is participating in the long Star Wars history of good guys dressing up as bad guys to get behind enemy lines and wreck things as seen in the original Star Wars, Rogue One, and in um, stuff we know about Last Jedi, we've seen images from the um, reel they showed a couple months ago that show Finn and Rose in Imperial disguises. But she could be a good guy, just dressed up. But I'm going to assume she's not. She has a posh British accent. And everybody knows all good Imperial villains have posh British accents. (laughs) So I said maybe she's an Imperial officer of some kind. But her clothes, which you can see, are very baggy. They're not like the tightly formed... Nazi-ish outfits you see from all Imperial officers. But what it does look like is a flight suit, something that she would wear the gear of a TIE fighter pilot over. 
So I'm wondering, and I say this in the article, and I could be completely wrong. This is just me having fun and trying to figure out a little too much on a slow news day. Is is Tandy Newton playing an Imperial TIE fighter pilot, possibly maybe an ace fighter pilot, maybe somebody who Han Solo, this, this reckless, skilled pilot, can face down uh, in this uh, in the in space or in the sky? And I and which brings me to: Is she playing an established character from Star Wars canon, or is she playing a new character? And this was a few years ago, I would have said new character, but with Saw Gerrera making the jump from uh, the animated shows to live action, I'm willing to consider that maybe there is a connection here already. And there are two characters who she could be playing who exist in the Star Wars universe already. There is Ray Sloan, who is an Imperial Admiral during the events of Return of the Jedi. And she figures into the Aftermath trilogy novels, where she helps um, the Imperial fleet uh, come back together after Return of the Jedi for its last stand against the Rebel Alliance. Um, she helps, it suggests that she helps form the First Order. And she's the right age. Uh, Teddy Newton's 44, which means that in the 10 years or so, or however many years that happened between Han Solo and the original trilogy, she could age, age up to become an admiral, somebody who is no longer a pilot, somebody who is um, pulling the strings and actually in charge of things. The other possibility, also it should be mentioned that um, Ray Sloan, is always has always been depicted in fan art and on the page as a woman of color, a black woman. Uh, so it, it makes sense on that level. And there also is another black imperial pilot in black imperial female pilot in Star Wars lore, who is a Sienna Ree, who is a character introduced in the novel Lost Stars. However, she's in her twenties during the events of the Galactic Civil War in the original trilogy. So while while it is another black female Tie Fighter pilot. I do think that if she is an established character, you're seeing a young Ray Sloan before she was commanding Star Destroyers back when she was maybe piloting TIE Fighters. So, Peter and Ben, am I crazy or does this make sense? <laughs> I mean, I think you did a tremendous amount of, uh, of guesswork based on a sliver of a shoulder patch, but it actually does make <laughs> a lot of sense. So it's, I am impressed. I bow down to you, sir. See, this is my favorite thing about Star Wars is, is that the... The long, the big lengths that we will go to try to extrapolate information from the littlest possible things, because we love it so much. Um, it should also be mentioned that in the uh, legends backstory for Han Solo, he you know started as an Imperial pilot, and he kind of left uh, that life to become a smuggler. Um, it's been rumored that the bad guy in this upcoming film is. Woody Harrelson's character who might start as his kind of um, mentor. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering how the Imperial f- fit into this story. Do are, are they just at the beginning of the story with, you know, Han being part of the empire or are, do they serve as adversaries later on? Uh, but it, it definitely seems that this confirms at very least that they, they do have a role in this movie. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that it's not just a. I hope the, the Empire has a big role here, but I also hope that we get a lot of criminal enemies as well. Because you imagine, I love the idea of, of young Han Solo being torn between the criminal underworld that wants him dead and the Empire who wants him dead. I think everybody should want Han Solo dead. That's my favorite Han Solo, the <laughs> one, who, one who everybody wants dead. So. You're right, and I, I think it's a good good place for these standalone films to kind of make someone else the villain. The Empire doesn't always have to be the villain. Um, so I, you know, I'd, I'd like to see more of this crazy, wacky group of bounty hunters after him as well. Um, moving on, 
the new Shaft movie, which I don't think any of us were really looking forward to, <laughs> may become the turning point for Netflix's distribution model. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yes. Traditionally, Netflix has been fairly insistent on day and date releases, which means that when one of their movies becomes available in theaters on the the rare case that Netflix actually puts something in theaters, it also becomes available on the streaming service at the same time. Um, This has proven to be sort of problematic for a lot of theater owners who don't, you know, they prefer exclusive theatrical windows of movies. They don't like it when things are simultaneously available on streaming services. Uh, Amazon, meanwhile, has been sort of taking a different approach where they essentially put movies in theaters for a while and then put them on Amazon Prime streaming service. So uh, it's sort of a fundamental difference in strategy. But now there is a new deal uh, that centers around this uh, Shaft movie, which I think we, we know is called Son of Shaft, which actually stars Richard Roundtree, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jesse T. Usher as three generations of shaft family members basically uh butting heads over old school versus new school interpretation interpretations of crime solving methodologies and uh tim story is directing this movie right now uh deadline just reported that there is a deal that is almost closed between netflix and new line cinema for the rights to this shaft movie and according to the terms of this deal netflix is going to quote pay more than half of the film's high $30 million budget in exchange for international rights and the ability to put the film on its streaming service outside the U.S. two weeks after New Line releases the movie theatrically in the United States. So that's a big change for Netflix. That's a big deal um, because uh, the movie is going to, uh, as far as um, American audiences know, it will just be business as usual. This movie is going to come out in theaters. It's going to uh, transition from a theatrical release to VOD and, and home video under the Warner Brothers marketing team the same way that any other Warner Brothers movie would. But for people outside of the U.S., this movie will be available two weeks after it hits theaters. And that's a big deal because uh, movies that are aimed at black audiences, primarily black audiences, tend to not really perform that well overseas. They There are big... Uh, instances like Girls Trip this year that uh, prove that there are, you know, there's definitely the potential for like massive hits for movies that are aimed specifically at that little served, underserved uh, demographic. But typically that doesn't always translate to international success. So under this deal, uh, Netflix will be able to let the rest of the world sort of um, feel like they're participating in the cultural co- conversation around a movie like this that happens to you know, that has the potential to hit big in the United States. Um, and I think it, it's a it's a big change. It's a big deal. What do you guys think about this? Um, it, it is a big deal because it does show that Netflix is willing to, you know, work a little bit uh, with this model. And um, it, it does show that, like, uh, a movie, like, I guess, Deadline here is saying, you know, genre movies could, you know, take advantage of this uh, because, you know, a movie that would normally only be made for, you know, $15, $20 million might get, you know, an extra $10 million from Netflix to have the distribution internationally go, mm-hmm. uh, you know, two weeks after the release date uh, in, in the U.S. That that seems like a win-win for us. Um, I just don't I, – I, I still want the day and date. 
Like I'm, I, I still, you know, as much as I love the home, the the, mo- the movie going experience, I think you give consumers what they want, and they are going to choose the way they want to see it. And I, I think holding it back, uh, I don't know. I'm just with them. Jacob, how about you? I guess it's a really interesting idea. Um, unlike you, Peter, I'm not sure how I feel about day and date. Because I value going to the movies so much that I'm afraid that that's step one into killing it completely. So uh, it's just something I'm, I'm very torn about because I, I think this is something that's going to be good for audiences, good for studios, good for Netflix. And I think for the right movies, it's going to be a interesting step. I do remember how, I guess close to a decade ago, Steven Spielberg was asked about the future movie theaters. And described a scenario where people pay Broadway-priced tickets in order to go see the biggest, most expensive movies, and only those in theaters, and everything else gets sent elsewhere. And I feel like smaller movies being shuffled off Netflix this quickly is a step toward that. And for some people, it probably sounds great. For a lot of people, it probably sounds like my theaters stink, people talk, they text, I'd rather watch at home. But uh, as somebody who still values that experience, uh, I'm hesitant, but at the same time, but do you, I do you think really this is think, the future. Do you really think the experience of going to the movies is that bad that if everybody had the choice to watch the movies at home, they would choose that option. I think a lot of people would. Uh, I, um, I, I am blessed to be in areas where they have, have a strong film culture of people who care with the theaters uh, that tend to have high, high quality projection and sound. Um, but not everybody is. And every time I talk to somebody who's not in New York, LA or Austin or Chicago cities have options I hear nightmare stories. Like well, one of our, one of our writers, uh, Vanessa Bogart. She's a military. She's married to a, ma- a gentleman in the army, and they have relocated to a, a state that is not one you talk about very often. <laughs> I don't want to give away her location, and she stopped going to the movies. Um, she writes. The reason why she writes about a lot of television for Slash Film is because she doesn't go to the movies. She waits till it's at home because going to the local theater is such a nightmare, that um, she she waits. So and it's, I, I keep that in perspective whenever I talk about going to the movies because not everybody's lucky to have theaters that and audiences that care. I, I, I seem to think that it's going to go the way that Spielberg predicted, but I think it's going to be a variable pricing. It's going to be, you know, you want to see the big budget Marvel movie, you're going to pay 20 bucks to see it. If you want to go see this Netflix movie that's going to be on Netflix the same day, you pay, you know, seven bucks to see it. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that's the future of the cinema experience, but maybe I'm being hopelessly optimistic that people would actually pay for something that they could get in their homes. We'll see. Yes. Um, Moving on from that to another Netflix uh, property that is stranger things. Uh, The Duffer brothers have been saying that they, uh, they have a vision for four seasons of this uh, story. So that this would go up until Stranger Things season four or Stranger Things four, I guess they would probably call it. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, Sean Levy, the producer, has come out talking to Entertainment Weekly uh, saying, quote, hearts were heard breaking in Netflix headquarters when the brothers made four seasons sound like an official end. And I was suddenly getting phone calls from our actors, agents. The truth is we're definitely going four seasons. And they're very, there's very much the possibility of a fifth. Beyond that, it becomes, I think, very unlikely. So it sounds like 
you know, it's going to be four or five seasons, which is something the Buff- the Duffer brothers said previously. But um, it, it is interesting that they kind of are, you know, pointing to the infield and, you know, calling that end so early on. I know Lost did that uh, kind of midway through uh, when, when they were starting to suffer some some problems with longevity of that series. But um, what do you guys think? Do you, do you think that they, they should be planning this whole arc out like that? I mean, I, I kind of admire that they kind of have this plan in mind. Jacob, any thoughts? I, I think TV shows are an, are, are an organic process. I think long-term planning sometimes feel like a disaster. Like you, you write a character and say, this guy is going to be a major character and it doesn't click, and maybe you're stuck with them, or vice versa. You create a character who's a supporting role, maybe with one or two appearances, who's amazing. So you want to have the maneuverability to bring him back in a major way, and so it makes make him a main character. So I, I guess I'd rather have television be a little sloppy, but organic and flexible, as opposed to rigid and planned to the point where there's no room to let the magic evolve. So. The Duff Brothers can go off and say, it's four seasons and we're done, and that's great, that's, that's their plan. Um, but if they're making their show and realize our, our alchemy is still working, let's keep this going, you know, I, I say go for it. I, I don't want to force an artist in, 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 into a box. So honestly, my, my ultimate end-of-the-day opinion is I have no opinion. Let, let them make the show and see how it works. Yeah, you bring up some good points. I think overall, like in the the very broadest terms, I do prefer for people to have an idea of what the ending is going to be uh, in advance, just so they have something to shoot for. But yeah, obviously having uh, room for um, you know being able to sort of come up with things on the on the fly and spontaneity and all that definitely is a, is a huge advantage. Um, I mean, Breaking Bad would not be the show that it was if they stuck to the plan. So. Um, so, yeah, I hope that they can keep things going but not outstay their welcome. Yeah, and, and there's also the possibility that they could pull an it and, you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years into the future of these these characters. Uh, so if, if they did hit that end point that has been envisioned, they could theoretically still do more Stranger Things with the same oh, that's characters. That's such a smart idea. That's such yeah. a smart yeah. idea, Peter. That's going to happen. They, they that would... so they ripped off so much of it already by accident. They might as well just go for it. <laughs> I, I almost think it's going to happen in these five seasons at some point that we're going to start to get flash forwards and, fi- you know, it's going to intertwine. But maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Uh, moving on. Uh, Luke Besson's Lucy 2 is still happening, and it's thanks to Valerian. Jacob, what do we know? Remember Lucy? Do you guys remember Lucy, that 2014 science fiction movie with Scott Johansson? I, I remember it made a lot of money. <laughs> That's all I remember. It did. It did well. It was um, the. It was kind uh, of. A, it was kind of the first on that that <laughs> like era of female-driven action films doing really yeah. well at the box office, and, and Hollywood being surprised. It was that... a scientifically unsound action movie <laughs> where Scarlett Johansson, due to a special drug, has her brain unlocked to the areas that humans normally can't access, and she gains superpowers and can manipulate reality and it's it actually got pretty positive reviews for a movie as dumb as it is and I know a lot of people who love it i i did not and we've been hearing about on and off of lucy too since then since it was a huge hit and since the writer director luke Passan has been off making other things and he recently released uh, valerian and the city of a thousand planets which you discussed in the show before because it was a huge bomb 
Valerian didn't make the money it needed domestically, didn't make the money it needed internationally. People at Europa Corp uh, lost their jobs, things that we shuffled. And think about Luke, Luke Besson founded Europa Corp, the company that, that produced Valerian. So he's fine. He's always going to have a place to make his movies. But according to most recent news, Lucy 2 is being pushed forward again because it's sort of in their new wheelhouse. Post-Valerian, they're trying to realize maybe our modus operandi going forward shouldn't be $150 million sci-fi spectacles and should be modestly budgeted star vehicles um, that are built around more modestly budgeted action and smaller stakes it would be easier to sell and turn a profit on. So Valerian had to fail for them to start realizing, hey, maybe the thing we did really well before is a template we should go forward. So while I'm not a fan of Lucy, I feel like this is maybe the right fit. I think Luc Besson's always excelled in making these kind of movies like The Fifth Element or like The Professional or Leon, whatever preferred title is, where maybe a little more constrained, a little more stripped down, certainly cheaper, I think is his element. But I'm curious, are you guys excited for Lucy too? I know I kind of started off kind of snarky because <laughs> I feel like the movie's kind of kind of vanished, even though it did really well and made Scott Johansson a bankable star. Are people would people be excited for this? I also did not like this movie, and I thinking about the ending of the film, I can't imagine how they would bring Scarlett Johansson back for Lucy 2. I mean, the movie devolved into such ridiculous nonsense by the time it wrapped up, so maybe if they just keep the nonsense alive, they'll be able to come up with some ridiculous contrived way to get her back in action. But I'm sort of wondering if like maybe the sequel will follow a completely different character or like Morgan Freeman's character or something like that. Because I just, I, if I remember the ending correctly and I don't necessarily want to spoil it for people who haven't seen the original yet. Um, I just feel like it would be pretty tough to bring her back. It gets downright 2001 a space odyssey in those final five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have not seen the movie yet, nor do I expect to ever see the movie at this point, but maybe if there's a sequel actually comes out, I'll, I'll be forced to, um, so I don't really have much of an opinion on Lucy 2. It, it seems like one of those things that, you know, it had a lot of buzz when it came out. You know, it breaking these box office kind of barriers. And it seemed like one of those movies that they should have jumped on and done the sequel right away. Like waiting this much time, I think, only hurts it. And I feel like it's setting up for another box office failure for Europa Corp. So, yeah. So that is it for today's podcast. Look at that, guys. We're almost near 30 minutes. We, 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 we're we getting there. We're getting closer to our goal. It's only taken us like two months. Uh, <laughs> we're trying, though. We're trying. Uh, you can find more of all of these stories on SlashFilm.com. You can find Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter. You can find Jacob at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter. You can find me at SlashFilm on, and SlashFilm.com. And uh, you can subscribe to this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, send us your feedback. Send us your questions for the mailbag. Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. Go to iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a rating. That helps us out quite a bit. Spread the word on uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you're using. Tell people about this because that's how people find out about this podcast is uh, when when you talk about it. And uh, thank you for listening.